At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up. Like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. True or false, Congress should pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece. That's what we're here to debate. Another verbal joust from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We're at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University. Two teams will argue that proposition from opposite sides, one for it and one against it, and only one team will win, and you, our audience here at the Skirball Center, a packed house, will decide the winner. Arguing for this motion that Congress should pass the jobs plan piece by piece, a former economic advisor to President Obama and a professor at Princeton University, Cecilia Rouse. Her partner is one of the nation's most prominent economic forecasters, chief economist of Moody's Analytics, Mark Zandi. Putting the not in the proposition, Congress should not pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece. This team includes... Uh, an influential thinker in legal academia, a professor here at New York University School of Law, Richard Epstein. And his partner is a libertarian economist who focuses on tax reform and policy. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, Daniel Mitchell. Our motion is Congress should pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece. And here to argue for that motion, Mark Zandi co-founder of Economy.com and the author of the book Financial Shock. He is also, interestingly enough, Mark, I noticed that on the White House blog where they are defending this plan, they cite when they talk about independent points of view, Mark Zandi. Yeah, I must be right then. Well, it would be very interesting to see you agree with yourself tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Zandi. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to make four points in my opening remarks. Uh, Point number one is that we need to avoid going back into recession, and the jobs plan is instrumental in ensuring that we don't. Uh, The economy is obviously struggling. Uh, This is very obvious by looking at the job market. Over the uh, last few months, we've been getting job growth that's close to 75,000 per month on average. Uh, Just for context, uh, we need almost double that to uh, maintain a stable rate of unemployment. And unemployment is already 9.1% and thus threatens uh, to move higher. This is a rather dramatic reversal of fortune from where we were at the start of the year. I mean, uh, January, February, March, April. We were creating a couple hundred thousand jobs per month, and I was uh, quite optimistic about the economy's prospects. But we got nailed by uh, a a number of uh, what I would call unfortunate events. In in fact, John, I'd say they're unpredictable. Higher energy prices uh, uh, due in part to the Arab Spring and the Libyan conflict. The Japanese quake, uh, very hard on manufacturing, which has been a key source of growth. But I think... Uh, I do think that uh, if policymakers do nothing, 
Uh, the odds of recession are very serious. Uh, in fact, I, I think they're better than even. Point number two, uh, I think the fiscal stimulus uh, that has been implemented to date has been effective. In fact, the Recovery Act, uh, this is the stimulus that most people are focused on, the $850 billion package, a few dates. The Recovery Act was passed in mid-late February 2009. By June, the economy was growing again. GDP was increasing. Uh, the recession was over. Uh, the, recover the, the stimulus efforts were very successful in ending the Great Recession, jump-starting an economic recovery. Third point is that the Obama plan is pretty well structured, $450 billion over two years, $250 billion of which approximately are, are tax, temporary tax, increase, uh, tax cuts, another $200 billion in temporary spending increases. It, you know, not all of the pieces of the package are made equal. In my view, the most important element of the plan is the extension of the payroll tax holiday for workers. If we do not extend that, Taxes for everyone will rise on January 1, 2012, and again, given this economy, that would be a very significant problem. Uh, and the most important thing you should know, it is all paid for. It will be paid for by uh, uh, the discussion is to have a, sur a tax surcharge on people who make a million dollars a year. And finally, uh, the jobs bill is only one part of what policymakers need to do to get this economy on the right track. We also need long-term economic policy. So this is only the start of what we need to do. It's not the end. Thank you. Thank you, Mark Sandy. Our motion is Congress should pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece. And here to speak first against the motion, Daniel Mitchell. In his past, he was an economist for Senator Bob Packwood and the Senate Finance Committee. And Dan, you do these videos online that I've seen where you explain economics to the masses. Uh, I, I, I was taken with your discussion of government spending in which you said that in the end you feel that the real reason that government spending happens, you say, I suspect it's because politicians just love spending other people's money. But you worked for a politician. Yes, but I've reformed. You've, okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Daniel Mitchell. Well, uh, thank you very much. It's a real honor to be here, especially with uh, such a distinguished group of co-panelists. As a matter of fact, I think you know, what am I doing here? I'm sort of like the SAT uh, answer. One of these things is not like the other. Uh, but hopefully, uh, since I am representing the Cato Institute, I want to give people a very good impression about what libertarian philosophy of less government and indiv individual freedom is all about. And the way Richard and I are going to divide up our responsibility, I'm going to look at sort of the macro issues. And I want to divide my part up, the macro part, looking first at the theory and then at the evidence. Now, Keynesians say that whenever the economy is weak, the government should borrow money, spend the money, or give tax uh, rebates or tax relief in some form or fashion. The goal of both the spending and the tax relief is to put money in people's pockets so people will go out and spend the money and sort of jumpstart the economy. And that sounds very plausible. It makes sense. There's only one little problem with the theory. Where does the government get the money? Government can borrow money, government can tax money, but there's no way the government can put money into the economy without first in some form or fashion taking money out of the economy. And what is it that we're trying to do? My contention is that what Keynesianism does is it redistributes national income, but our goal should be not to redistribute national income, we want to increase national income, we want a bigger pie so everyone can get a bigger slice. That's what economic growth is all about. Now, let me give a little bit of humility first on behalf of all economists. 
If you ask five economists a question, you'll get nine answers. We're not very good at these things. Uh, and, and especially when you're looking at something like the overall macroeconomy. There's trade policy, there's regulatory policy, there's labor policy, monetary policy, uh, oil price shocks, you name it. And now we're expecting to look at one little slice of, of all these different policy levers, fiscal policy, and we're supposed to make sweeping judgments about what exactly it means. Of course, at best, all we're really doing is guessing. But if you look at those periods in time when you did have politicians like Hoover and Roosevelt increasing government spending, it doesn't seem to have worked. But it's not just the 1930s. Gerald Ford had a Keynesian tax rebate package in the 1970s. It didn't work. Bush had a Keynesian stimulus package in 2008. It didn't work. And then, of course, Obama more recently has done the same thing. But if you ask me what should happen, I look at things such as the Clinton years and the Reagan years, and this should make uh, Cecilia happy because she worked for the Clinton administration before working for the Obama administration. She did a good job her first time around. Her second time, maybe not so much. But if you look at what happened during the Reagan years and the Clinton years, you will see that during the Reagan years, during the Clinton years, you had more economic liberalization, more freedom, a reduced burden of government spending, and that's why I think we got better economic results during those periods. Thank I you very thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you. So here's where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan of ABC News, and we have four debaters, two teams of two. You've heard the first two debaters, and now on to the third. Arguing for the motion, I'd like to introduce Cecilia Rouse. She's a professor of economics and public affairs at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School. From 2009 to 2011, she was on the inside. She served as a member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. And Cecilia, I want to ask you about Thanksgiving at your house. Because <laughs> I understand you have a physicist father and a physicist brother, and you're an economist and three PhDs. Maybe there's a fourth one in the family somewhere. So what, what do you talk numbers and formula all ac through? Ac actually, there is a fourth PhD. My sister, who's also a professor at Princeton, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Cecilia Rouse. Thank you. It really is a pleasure to be here tonight. And, uh, you know... My, my debate partner talked about some of these bigger pictures. I'm a labor economist. I got into economics because I was worried about the unemployed, and I still am. Um, there are 14 million workers in the United States who are unemployed. Half of them have been unemployed for more than six months. And there's about 9 million who are working part-time but who would actually like to work uh, full-time. We've had 19 straight months of private sector employment growth, but we've also had many, many months where the public sector has had negative employment growth. And as a result, we have a recovery, but it's a recovery with a small r. It's just fledgling. Um, and as Mark pointed out, I'm also very concerned that this recovery is just not far enough along. Now, let's first talk about the pillars of what are the major components of this plan. So first of all, about 40% of it is putting money in the hands of individuals. Okay, some people may say, well, look, that's putting money in their pockets. They're not doing much. But let's talk about it. So the tax cut was providing about $1,500 a year in tax cuts for those who earned about $50,000 a year, which is about what the median family earns, I should say. Um, it was about $2,500 for those earning $80,000 or more. Um, it continues the federally funded unemployment insurance benefits. Now, let's talk about that. Six million workers will lose those unemployment insurance benefits. They lost their job through no fault of their own. These benefits are not helping them live high on the hog. It's only replacing about half of their wages, which means they're getting a check of about $320 a week. It helps them to pay their mortgage or pay their rent. It helps them put food on the table. It helps them to support their local uh, businesses, et cetera. And that's the way in which it helps to support the economy. 
The Congressional Budget Office has said that these sorts of benefits are one of the fastest, most effective ways in which to help our economy in the short term. Um, it also, let's, say, let's face it, the private sector is the most important source of job growth in this country. They provide 80% of the jobs. So another part of this is this is not about trying to create a gigantic public sector jobs program. It's about trying to stand up the private sector. So another 20% or so is ways to try to cut the cost for businesses to do their business. Again, it, it extends the payroll tax cut not just to the employee but to the employer now. And it also provides an extra incentive for firms to bring on more workers. And lastly, as I mentioned before, you know, that all of those should help in the next year. But we know we're going to be in this for a little while. And so 20% of it is also directed towards infrastructure, which, again, we think is actually one of the pillars of uh, economic growth. So in closing, yes, I support a program uh, that will provide support to this economy today because I am very worried about uh, how families are getting by. The, the, we have 46 million uh, families living in poverty. I'm worried that uh, our, econ our recovery is fragile. Um, this doesn't mean that we don't need longer-term strategies to have more robust growth going forward, but I just don't happen to believe that these aren't mutually exclusive. Maybe hope springs eternal, but I think that Congress can walk and chew gum at the same time. Thank you. Thank you, Cecilia Rouse. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. The motion is, Congress should approve Obama's jobs plan. Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Our motion is Congress should pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece. And now here to speak against the motion, I'd like to introduce Richard Epstein. He's a professor of law here at New York University Law School, um, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and a professor of law emeritus and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago, where a colleague you used to bump into in the hallways, an adjunct professor, was named Barack Obama. Yes, he was and, a senior and I lecturer. I, yes. I, I understand you knew him a little bit, and you're quoted as saying that you found him to be an amazingly, uh, amazingly talented at playing intellectual poker, which to me sounds pretty cool. It's very cool. It was very difficult to read the man, and that's why it was that he was such a great poker player. But the question is not whether he could play poker. It's whether or not the statute that he proposes is one that will do the things that we wanted to do. And in this debate, there is no disagreement over the sad state of the American economy and the need for something to be done. And I'm a lawyer, and I'm with three economists, and I have at least one comparative advantage or disadvantage, as the case may be. I actually spend time reading the statute to see what it says in order to figure out whether or not the pieces make any sense. And it's interesting. You can talk about this at the macro level, but it's also extremely important to talk about it at the micro level. And so let me tell you some of the pieces which I think are positively self-destructive and what never to see the light of day. One of the truly misguided features of the stimulus program of 2009 was the passage of ARA, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which instituted a whole variety of Buy American provisions in the bill with respect to those funds which were to be distributed through the government to various kinds of employees. It's a massive bureaucracy which is designed to ensure that the money which is so distributed will be largely wasted. The whole thing, in effect, will take a large portion of the stimulus program and it will turn it into a waste. 
A similar provision is a reincantation of one of the worst pieces of Hoover's legislation, the Davis-Bacon Act, saying that when the government gives this kind of money out, you have to pay prevailing, i.e. union wages, with respect to the money in question. So the stimulus program seems to say the way in which you get the most for your money is to spend as much as you can on labor rather than as little as you can, and there's no way that this kind of monopoly waste can possibly improve the situation with respect to the legislation in question. A third feature of the bill is to introduce a new form of an anti-discrimination act, which says that you cannot discriminate against people who are unemployed when you decide whom to hire. That, of course, is an extremely complicated provision. It has about four separate pages to it. So any employer who now wants to go out into the labor markets has to worry about the question when they hire from other places that they may be running, exposing themselves to either government liability or to private lawsuits. Then the next thing that we've heard about, and was praised mightily, was the payroll reduction tax for a single year. Uh, employers are not people who are foolish. They understand that if they want to hire somebody for the long run, they don't only look at this year's rates, they look at next year's rates as well. Our objective with respect to tax policy is to create some kind of a sustainable system of growth. We cannot do that, say to people, hire people this year, train them for 26 weeks, and then when you get to next year, what's going to happen is you're going to go back to the higher rates of taxation. When you start looking at the other micro things, for example, in 2005, what we decided to do was to raise the minimum wages. And it seemed to be a fine thing because those were optimistic days. But if those wages happen to go down in market terms at the same time that the minimum wage has moved up, what's going to happen is at the lower level, you're going to find that it's very difficult for lots of unskilled people to get that first job. So this is another kind of policy that you have to be able to reverse under the circumstance of this case. So the final message that I want to leave you with is this. Uh, the way to deal with labor problems is not to talk about earthquakes, it's to talk about labor markets. And the way to talk about labor markets is to liberalize them such that when people realize their chances to get gains from trade, they will return to the hiring market. Thank you. Thank you, Richard Epstein. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is Congress should pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece. So now on to round two where I ask questions to the debaters. They address one another. We take questions from you. Our motion is Congress should pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece. We have two teams of debaters. We have Cecilia Rouse and Mark Zandi who are presenting the argument in favor of this motion and in favor of the jobs plan, arguing that they feel that it is absolutely critical to avoiding another recession, arguing against them. Richard Epstein and Daniel Mitchell, who argue that this is essentially another stimulus plan, that historically stimulus plans do not work, that it is rife with all kinds of bureaucratic induction of, of, of distorted enhancements that will make it difficult for businessmen simply to hire people and make decisions going forward, and therefore, if it were passed, it would never work. That's where the two sides stand on this. And I want to start with a question to the side arguing for the motion and to Mark Zandi. With your opponents arguing very strenuously that essentially this is a stimulus program, and you have argued that stimulus programs have already worked in this administration, I want you to take on their argument that historically that's not the case at all. Uh, well, I don't think that's true. Uh, I think uh, fiscal stimulus is a tried and true policy response to recessions. Every recession since World War II, we've had fiscal stimulus. In fact, the degree of fiscal stimulus provided is 
commensurate with the severity of the recession, at least as measured by the unemployment rate. In fact, one could argue that the fiscal stimulus that was provided in this recession, the Great Recession, was inadequate. Uh, Moreover, uh, I'm not alone in this view. Um, The CBO, a nonpartisan group respected by both Republicans and Democrats, they score the various proposals made by policymakers. Uh, they uh, do studies of uh, various stimulus packages, and they release those, uh, the estimates on the impact on, on GDP, on jobs, on employment, on a regular basis, and they show consistently that they believe that this has okay. uh, been yeah. a plus so for the So you're saying it's mainstream view. I'd like to bring yeah. it to Richard Epstein uh, on the other look, side. Look, I think, in effect, we've seen the results already. At the time that the Obama administration introduced its first stimulus program, there was a confident prediction supported by the CBO that it would lower the unemployment rate down to 8%. Nothing of the sort happened. It stayed exactly dead level under the circumstances. And essentially, the CBO scores in a very static way. It listens to what the administration says about the number of dollars you're going to spend in the course for particular jobs, and it thinks that economics is a form of multiplication and subtraction and addition. The problem is the money has to come from somewhere. If, in fact, you decide to run this thing through a stimulus program, you must raise taxes. If you raise them, as is now proposed, on the most productive individuals in society, it turns out that you're taking money from the hands of people who know how to use it and to putting into the sands of the government, which simply does not. So the prediction is, at this particular time, what will happen is exactly the same thing that happened before. There will be a short-term burst, and then magically there will be another earthquake, and the program will fail. Okay, Cecilia Rouse, I'd like you to respond. There are a bunch of points in there, including <laughs> don't trust the CBO. Well, you know, there is a, a, a theory in public finance that says that you shouldn't have very high marginal tax rate on the very highest earner. Um, but if you actually look at the, you know, in our experience over time, there's not a great relationship between the highest marginal tax rates and how we're doing in terms of economic growth. If you look at um, Reagan, uh, you know, he lowered tax rates for high-income uh, individuals. Uh, Clinton increased them. And you saw actually somewhat greater economic growth under Clinton than under Reagan. Um, so I think, yes, there is, you know, these are tax rates. So I'm not going to say that there's no impact at all in terms of uh, lowering economic growth, et cetera. But it's very small for the highest earners because they don't spend, they don't spend the tax cut. Daniel Mitchell. Uh, well, a couple of points. Uh, one good thing about being a libertarian is I don't have to respect the CBO because CBO, like a lot of the Keynesian models, they presuppose their results. It's just a mathematical formula. If the mathematical formula is wrong, if they automatically assume that if the government increases spending by X, the economy goes up by Y, and, and they never pay attention to the fact that, well, the economy actually went down by Z, they say, well, it would have gone down by more than Z if it wasn't for the government spending. So it's sort of this perpetual motion machine of economics. The White House in 2009 said, if you pass the so-called stimulus, the unemployment rate will never rise above 8%, and instead it's never dropped below 9%. Let me just fact check to the other side. Is that accurate? That Cecilia is, Rouse. Okay, so that wasn't the White House. That was a transition paper by Christina Romer and Jared Bernstein. Okay, so, so the head of the Council of Economic Advisors. No, we weren't at the CEA at that point. Okay, so here is the point about that number, though, right? There's always a counterfactual, and as it turned out, they they generated that estimate based on what they knew at the time, which was in December 2008. As it turns out, the economy was a lot sicker than what they even knew. So, so in other words, this is the Krugman argument that no matter how much Keynesianism fails, you just should have spent even more money, but that's what gets you eventually to becoming Greece. There is no way to to falsify that proposition, because if things go better, the stimulus did it. 
it. If things go worse, they would have been even worse still. So the question is, why do we believe when we've had a system of stagnation, when what you propose are short-term stimulus, which by definition will drop off, these are not going to have long-term benefits. You're eating your seed corn. You now have 40% of the budget which is being financed by deficits. And the question is, how long is that going to be sustainable? There is an optimism in your position that somehow or other we can go from short-term stuff to long-term stuff, and yet there's no explanation as to how that transition and, and Mark, is And Mark Richard is also made. making the point that you really can't prove your claims for stimulus spending having worked because, as he says, you're saying, well, it would have been worse if they hadn't. So, How can I, I mean, prove but, the counterfactual? Okay. I, mean, I tried to make my case with respect to timing. February 2009, the stimulus, the one that we're focused on, passed. Uh, in February 2009, we lost literally 750,000 jobs. We lost 750,000 jobs in January. We lost 750,000 jobs in March. Uh, the economy was shrinking rapidly. We were in free fall. By June, the recession was over. Not by my definition, by the National Bureau mm -hmm. of Economic Research. So, okay, you could argue maybe the economy magically would have found its footing without help from the federal government. And I'm not saying stimulus was the only thing. There were many policy responses. There was the Federal Reserve. There was the TARP programs. There was lots of different things. But that. I think it's fair to say, you know, just given the chronology of events, that the stimulus had a very positive impact the economy would have performed measurably worse. No, but because at the same point, Richard you have Epstein. to predict that the stimulus also would fizzle. And that's exactly what it did. Okay, can I respond? Yeah, I, I, I concur. I concur. I, I, well, I the administration agree with you doesn't. That the stimulus efforts are not a source of long-term growth. They are not. They were never intended to be. They were to provide support to the economy in a time of crisis, when we were in free fall. But we also need policies like the ones you're talking about, and we need mm. to focus on tax policy, and most importantly of all, we need to focus on our long-term fiscal okay. So you're I saying that this, that this jobs plan is the fire truck rushing from the firehouse this right is, now? That's exactly what it is. Well, if well, you had asked me to come to this debate six months ago when the economy was – we were creating a couple hundred thousand jobs per month, they say, John, I'm not coming. You know, Keynesian theory works at – specific points in time. It's not an immutable fact. It doesn't work in every environment. All right, Dan, but this is an environment where no, it works. Wait, wait, Richard, let, let, I, your I have, Richard, let your opponent have uh, the mic for a minute. Daniel, can you respond to the point that Mark, Mark just made, that sometimes at specific points in time it works? In your remarks earlier, you said pretty much I think that it never works. Well, if you take a, a, a long-term view and not just cherry-pick an odd month here or there, and you go back in time and look at different countries where they've tried Keynesianism and it hasn't worked, uh, and one of the most interesting periods is when we didn't try Keynesianism. Uh, the recession coming out of World War I was very steep. We didn't do anything. The economy recovered very rapidly. And also, you look at countries around the world during this recent economic downturn. It's been fairly global. Uh, countries that were much less Keynesian in their approach, like uh, Germany and Canada, seemed to do better than countries that were more Keynesian in their approach, like the United Kingdom and the United States. Uh, in other words, the Hippocratic oath about do no harm, I think, really applies. Richard Epstein, what, the, the president's plan also calls for, for putting investment into jobs that would rebuild highways and bridges and airports and waterways, all of which, you know, it's clear we need. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with doing it so long as you do it correctly and so long as you do it systematically. And what's happened is, of course, with the rise of the transfer society, there's been a systematic neglect of infrastructure. And so clearly money has to go there. But if you look at this particular statute and the elaborate hoops that you have to go through, it is not a bill which is designed to promote infrastructure. It is a bill which is designed to make sure that the president's supporters, strong union members, get jobs which will allow them to contribute to the campaign to win. Uh, you, the difference between this particular... Well, I'm glad to see that you all approve. Um, 
But if you look at this program as against, for example, the WPA, the administrative overlay that you have here is very, very much higher. My own view about this is the infrastructure question should be handled on its own merits. It should not be bundled in with a stimulus bill. And once you get that right, if you look at this particular bill with its new boards and its, you know, four for the president and three for the other side, that's the last thing that you want to have running this kind of program. I want to mention our media partner in these debates is Slate. And in fact, we're being live streamed on Slate right now. So to everybody who's watching on Slate, uh, welcome and, and thanks for being with us. And we've asked you to submit questions, and there's a, there's a right now type of question from a Darren Clements in Williamsburg, Missouri, who asks, since the jobs bill is basically a temporary funding program, what are, what are the prospects for this actually having an impact on long-term employment? Are we really talking about jobs, or are we only talking about getting money into the system for stimulus? Are people really going to be better employed in the long term as a result of this program? I I think our economy has made significant progress in righting the wrongs that got us into this mess. We've uh, reduced debt. Businesses are in very good shape financially. Households have made a lot of progress. There's work to be done. We've got foreclosure uh, issues. The banking system is recapitalized. We've made uh, significant progress. We're on the verge of a much better economy. If we go back into recession, all those fundamentals of our economy are going to erode. All the good things, all the progress we made is going to go away, and it's going to hurt the ability of of people, businesses to hire and people to get jobs for the long run, for a long time to come. We are running the risk of going into a Japanese-like decade if we go back into recession in the six to nine months. We just can't allow that to happen. But, but the, the difficulty with that is you can go into recession in 16 to 18 months. And you're talking about the short-term disasters. I mean, what about the midterm disasters? The advantage of the deregulation on the labor market side is that has an effect today. So I'm going to ask you, Mark, just plain out, you're in favor of this bill. Would you get rid of the Davis-Bacon provision and the, and the Arrow provision and the unemployment Look, discrimination provision? This, I think this, the answer's got to be yes. This gets to the question of political economy. We have no time left. But you, you get rid wait, of things? Wait, wait. If you want – you ask me a question, I'm going to answer it. If we go down that path of trying to uh, repeal these laws that have been in statute for – since 1930 – We'll be debating this 10 years from now, and, and I'm going to ask we you just a question. Put them of the $450 in the billion dollars in the package, what? $450 billion package, how much of that is subject to the statutes that you're concerned uh, about? By America. Of, no, how much? Exactly. I, I don't know the exact number. No. $50 billion. Okay, okay. 50 out uh, of the $450 okay, billion. Let's Do get, not let the perfect be the enemy of the no, good. No. Cecilia Rouse. I, I just wanted to say something about the anti-discrimination provision. So uh, many employers have actually been having their ads, uh, and when they post for employment, they say, if you are unemployed, you need not apply. And uh, as a result, many people are concerned that this is not particularly conducive to employment growth. I, I'm, I understand that employers are being inundated with applications and with applicants. And I also understand that we want to let employers hire who they need to hire, who they think is the best match. But let's think of some of the negative spillovers of these ads to the rest of society, which is where I think we have a place for government intervention. Um, first of all, imagine you're an unemployed worker. Especially imagine you're an unemployed worker who's been unemployed for at least six months. So you're actually bordering on discouraged. I actually know of a single mother who's been on welfare and is, you know, marginally thinks she's not very attractive to employers. 
And the worst thing we want to do right now is to discourage workers from even trying, from even applying for jobs. The second negative spillover is in, in our economy, one of the ways in which young people in particular have job growth early in their career is actually by quitting jobs. And one of the problems we have right now is actually because of the labor market, we have fewer quits than we normally would have. And so they're not going to be climbing up the career ladder. It's actually a bad, as a negative spillover to the rest of society. Okay, Cecilia, so, 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 no, let me stop you there for some response. No, look, I mean, uh, uh, Dan Miller, the please. actual... Uh, Richard, okay. let Dan Miller come in. Uh, I want to make a point that some of you should get ready to hiss about, because I think this point <laughs> makes perfect sense, but some people don't like it. Employers only hire people if they think it's going to make them money. What is going to convince companies to hire workers? If you create a new potential legal liability with new government rules about how you're writing your want ads and who you're allowed to hire and what you're allowed to say when you're interviewing, is that going to increase or decrease the likelihood that companies are going to want to hire new people? We want workers to be an asset to firms, not a liability. I think markets... I think copying Hong Kong is a better idea than copying France. That, in some sense, is the summary of everything I would say this evening. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. The motion is, Congress should approve Obama's jobs plan. Stay with us. Our motion is Congress should pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece. We're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing this out. And we are talking about the part of the jobs bill that uh, would uh, uh, outlaw discrimination against workers who have been unemployed. And Cecilia Rouse is going to take up the point. So I just wanted to come back to that for just a moment because I, what, this, what this proposes is not saying that employers have to hire a specific person. What it says is, one, you can't put it in the ads. Okay, that is true. That is a restriction. You can't put in the ads that you will not look at an unemployed person. This is largely, let me just say, it's largely a symbolic gesture. Um, they, the Obama administration caps, the, caps damages at $1,000 if you fail to if you actually put something in an ad, it caps it at $5,000 if you can come up with them, if the EEOC, can, the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, can actually come up with a, a memo at documenting it. It's, it's meant to say, look, discrimination against those who are unemployed so we don't discourage workers. It, it really is a problem if unemployed workers uh, are, are, are discouraged from applying for jobs. But and this is really let's, just saying let's move employers on to, try to Let's move on to another topic uh, in the red. Uh, thanks. I'm Shyla Dewan from the New York Times, and my question is for the no side. What do you propose for the short term? I mean, if your proposals all seem to be about long-term issues, you know, if we're going to do a tax cut, let's make it permanent, that kind of thing. But what do you do for those unemployed people when their payments stop and they can't get a job because there aren't enough jobs? What, what is right your fire now? truck from the firehouse? I what? think is the question. Well, well, Richard Epstein. The answer that I said is the only way that this thing will stop is through liberalization of markets. If you repeal the restrictions against people getting jobs, employers will start to hire again. Uh, the difficulty with the unemployment situation is that the amount of revenues we have to spend now is probably two or three times the amount of taxes that we collect. And what happens is you will not be able to reverse that pattern so long as you think that stimulus at the grand level... But levels, Richard, the question was, what is your short-term solution? My short-term solution is deregulation, get rid of mandates get rid of minimum wages, get rid of the anti-discrimination proposals and so forth, because what you laugh about 
I mean, I think it's fine for you to laugh, but I think that you also ought to reflect upon the fact that gain, if you don't have gains from trade, you don't get employment. Your partner, uh, Dan Mitchell. Uh, I just want to make the point that good long-term policy also happens to be good short-term policy. Uh, I, I sort of threw out as a, as a throwaway line, I want to be Hong Kong rather than France, but there's actually a very serious point behind it. If you look at all these different measures of economic freedom, Hong Kong is always near the top, and France, among industrialized countries, is, uh, is down lower. And I think that is one of the reasons why Hong Kong grows 5 to 6% a year on average, and France grows 1 to 2% a year. And if we want the unemployed to get jobs, we want a strong, tight labor market like we had during the Clinton years when government spending fell from 22% of GDP to 18% of GDP, and what happened during the Reagan years when we also had more free market-oriented policies. That, I but think, Cecilia is the has, best answer. Cecilia mentioned much earlier that Clinton raised taxes on yes, the wealthy, and, and, and things and got really good. No, he... he Clinton raised taxes, but he also did GATT and NAFTA and welfare reform. He okay. reduced government spending by four percentage points of GDP. He deregulated uh, telecommunications and agriculture. I mean, if I could take everything else of Clinton's policies and it meant that I had to take the 39.6% marginal tax rate, I'd do it. We had a lot more economic freedom under Clinton than we've had under Bush and Obama. Okay, let's take another question. Yeah, amen. Um, question to Dan Mitchell. You earlier mentioned uh, Germany. Now, looking at this uh, Job Act bill, uh, on the one side, it increases taxes for high-income Americans, while it reduces taxes for lower-income Americans. Isn't that what, is, what has been done uh, in Germany? Yes, no, very, Dan Mitchell. As the Germans would say, sehr gut, sehr gut. Uh, what I was focusing on in my comments on Germany is what happened to government spending as a share of GDP. Germany did not do a big Keynesian stimulus program. It doesn't mean that I want to embrace German fiscal policy because the overall burden of government spending is, is higher. Actually, not that much higher than it is in the U.S. Uh, but Germany didn't do a Keynesian stimulus package of any magnitude close to the U.S., and I think that served them well, similar what, uh, to what happened in Canada. But my point on Germany was just the simple one that they didn't do the Keynesian okay, policies Mark, of the Mark UK Sandy and the would US. actually like a crack at that question. Yeah, no, I was just going to make the point that the Germans provided uh, just as much fiscal uh, support to their economy as we did in the recession. The difference is that in Germany they have automatic, uh, stable, so-called automatic stabilizers in their, their budget. That means that uh, there is more unemployment insurance, there is more welfare, there are the, the tax code is such that you generate a lot more fiscal support. In the U.S., we don't have – we have some automatic stabilizers, uh, but they're not nearly as uh, large as in Europe. And therefore, when we get into recessions, we rely more on what we're calling fiscal stimulus, that is temporary tax cuts and temporary spending okay. increases. So in terms of the fiscal support to the economy, the Germans did exactly what we did in terms of the GDP. In the blue shirt, Dan. Hi. My name is Scott Stevens, and I have a question for Mr. Zandi. Um, you say that the $450 billion stimulus should keep us out of a recession. Could you put a number on that? How many percent in growth you think we'll get from the uh, stimulus compared to the counterfactual? I think your answer to that is quoted on the White House blog, actually. <laughs> I haven't had a chance to read that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And which, which, as I said earlier, means it's right. Right. Yeah. Well, so, uh, Mark, why don't you take that question? Well, if you do the arithmetic, the math, under current policy, if there is no change in policy, a federal fiscal policy will shave uh, – 1.7 percentage points from GDP growth in 2012. State and local government cut, cuts will take the total fiscal drag, this is the headwind to the economy, to two percentage points of GDP. The Obama jobs package 
provides stimulus equal to 2 percent of GDP. So the in intent is to neutralize the fiscal drag. Now, you know, if I were king for the day, I'd say, you know, we can digest some fiscal austerity. We don't have to go the whole Monty here, but we need to do something. We can't just, uh, we're not going to be able to digest 2 percent. All right, so you were very specific. I want to go to the other side and say that he was very specific. Well, <laughs> there's a certain beauty to being exact about something. But if you go back and look at what Mark was saying in 2010 and what Mark was saying in 2009 and what Mark was saying in 2008, and then you compare those things to reality, they're always different than what actually happened. Now, of course, Mark will say, but other things happened in the economy. No, no, but I'd I say think I got this, it right. <laughs> but I think this gets at the problem that when you have a model that presupposes the result, Mark has a model, and if you put in a certain amount of government spending, that will automatically spit out a certain number of GDP and employment. Uh, CBO has the same model, and these are the kinds of models that gave us the White House, I guess, transition team document that said if we, if we squandered $850 billion, our unemployment rate would never go above 8%, and it just didn't work. It doesn't matter how many decimals you have in your estimate. If the fundamental underlying premise is wrong, it doesn't work. Okay. You're not giving me a chance that, to respond to that, John? What's, well, that, what's I, that all about? I you're going to say you were right. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's really why I'm not coming back. You're going you're to you're say you were right. And down the front. Hi, my name is Sivan Jakobovitz. I would like to ask a question to the opponents of this. You seem to be uh, presenting a, a broader and um, more long-term vision for what you think with deregulation and whatnot. I would like to know how your plan of deregulation in general in the economy would benefit Americans besides the wealthiest of Americans and what specifically this would do by creating, like you say, abolishing the minimum wage, creating low-paying jobs. How would this really benefit Americans as a whole and not just the top 1%? And how soon? The, the top 1%. <laughs> Richard Epstein. First of all, with respect to the top 1%, I think one ought to look at some of the numbers. Uh, the amount of ta revenue that has been collected from the top 1% in the last, from 2007 to 2009, declined by about 30%. The, so that what you're trying to do is to hit a top figure and assume that nothing you can do to them can hurt them. They have been hurt in terms of the money they have very much. <laughs> Oh, laugh if you may, but remember, 40% of that goes into your tax revenues. So every time what you do is you cut the revenue at the top, you cut the revenue for the programs that are needed to support the stimulus. Dream on if you think that you can avoid that kind of situation. If you reduce income at the top, you reduce the amount of money available for transfer. Mark at Sandy, the bottom, you what no. you have to do is if you reduce these things, you would get people on the job ladder. The moment they are on the job ladder, because employers now find it in their interest, they will advance. When you look at, for example, at people who could get in at minimum wage jobs, typically within six months or less, they've managed to promote themselves to another type of job. But it will not take place by employers unless they have some confidence in the long-term stability of the system. Every major tax measure that we have now has a two-year time frame on it so that the uncertainty dominates, in my judgment, the kinds of stimulus that you hope to get by the spending policy. And that concludes round two of our debate. And here's where we are. Um, we're about to hear brief closing statements from each debater in turn. They will be two minutes each uninterrupted. And remember how you voted before the debate because this is their last chance to try to persuade you to vote for their arguments at the end. 
and the team that has changed the most minds will be declared our winner. Our motion is this. Congress should pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece, and here to summarize his position against this motion, Daniel Mitchell, senior, fe senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Congress should not pass the President's job proposal either in its entirety or piece by piece because it represents a fundamentally misguided view of the economy that you can make yourself richer by taking money out of one pocket and putting it in the other. I think the historical evidence, the cross-country evidence does not support the Keynesian theory. Uh, but more importantly, I think good long-run policy is good short-run policy. I want to try to get back the labor market conditions we had under Reagan and Clinton. Economic freedom in America increased during the Reagan years and the Clinton years. By contrast, economic freedom declined during the Bush years, and that decline has continued during the Obama years. And again, I come back to you know, what originally was a joke line, but I really want to make a premise. Why is it that an economy like Hong Kong manages to grow so fast over such a long period of time? It takes in enormous amounts of immigrants. It rises, people rise from poverty to prosperity relatively quickly. That's the kind of economy I want to mimic. Not because I care about the top 1%. The top 1% have never really, I, I don't know, maybe some of them gave to the Cato Institute. So if you're out there listening, I love you. Uh, but... I care a lot more about the people at the bottom than at the top. If there's a recession, the Donald Trumps and Warren Buffetts and Bill Gates of the world never have to worry about how their household budget is going to be balanced. That's why I want to copy Hong Kong. In France, the rich people have figured out how to work it. I don't care about them. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel Mitchell. Our motion, Congress should pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece. And here to summarize his position for the motion, Mark Zandi, chief economist of Moody's Analytics. Well, thank you, John. I want to thank you for the opportunity again. And uh, I commend the other group for uh, articulating their views so thoughtfully. Um, I sympathize with a lot of what is being said by the other group. But, you know, I do think, you know, we, we, we have made some major changes to our economy, to our health care system, uh, to our banking system. And... These are difficult things for businesses and uh, individuals to adjust to. And I, and I do think that we need to work hard in reducing that regulatory and legal uncertainty. And we do need to take steps to address our long-term problems. Uh, again, I think it's vital that we work to achieve uh, fiscal sustainability, to get the long-term deficits down so that uh, our nation doesn't go the way of Europe uh, or of France. And I actually am quite optimistic about our economic prospects. I think uh, we have come a long way. Uh, our economy has righted a lot of the wrongs that got us to this point. Uh, we're really very close. We just cannot go back into recession in the near future. Uh, that would be damaging. The collective psyche is on edge. You're nervous. I'm nervous. Recession will just tip us over. The Obama's jobs package, even if it's passed in small parts, would go a long way to ensuring that we don't go back into recession and that bright economic future actually will be upon us, I think, sooner than we realize. Thank you. Thank you, Mark Zandi. Our motion, Congress should pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Richard Epstein, professor at the New York University School of Law. Yes, I, I think what happens is everybody agrees on the importance of trying to get both short-term and long-term proposals. My view about this is if we do not make long-term structural returns and make them soon, uh, the stimulus program will not succeed. The most that you could get out of this is six or nine months. So what is it that you have to do? You have to try to figure out why it is that in the last 10 years 
that has been a lost decade in terms of economic growth? And the answer is not that the stimulus program does or does not work. It is because all our mid-level institutions are inferior to what they were at an earlier time. The labor markets have become much more regulated. The banking industry has become much more concentrated at this particular point. The health care bill is a huge drain with respect to potential resources because the unemployment uncertainties associated with the mandate and everything else are, in fact, going to wield a very heavy load on this system. There is no way, in effect, that you can change the situation in the future if, in fact, you do not change the system correctly today. Employers and everybody else in this economy has rational expectations which don't only look at the short periods, they look at the long periods. So if we start talking about stimulus programs which have never worked, what happens is we're just going to add another layer of uncertainty on top of the layer of regulation, and we will be worse off than we are before. We do have a serious problem. We must do something. But if we think of the economy as being somebody with a diabetic shock, we ought not to figure it, add to it some sugar. Thank you, Richard Epstein. The motion, Congress should pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece. And here to summarize his proposition in support of the motion, Cecilia Rouse, professor of economics at Princeton University. I, I too, am concerned about um, the impacts of employer mandates um, on on labor markets and believe we should be very judicious in in looking at regulation. I think we should only put into place regulations where the benefits clearly exceed the cost. I think the evidence isn't really there that's minimum wage is such an egregious um, regulation, but that would be another debate. Um, However, if if the Clinton administration and the Clinton years were such an example of of economic freedom, in 2001 we had um, a recession where we had a jobless recovery. So what happened? Did the regulatory environment magically change and just with an election? Um, I think that what we have is what that tells us is that this regulatory environment is not going to address the cyclical changes. And I think we have a cyclical challenge right now. Um, and so I think it's appropriate for the Congress to step in. Now, as I've said from the outset, I think one of the most important pieces of this is, one, the, the tax relief for employees. Um, I, I just want to add to that that Congress has always extended these benefits during times of recession. And the reason is clear. It's penny-wise and pound-foolish not to do so. If workers and their families aren't supported, they're going to end up on other government programs. Um, more importantly, you know, as Mark has said very carefully, we really do risk, risk falling into um, another recession. Might doing nothing make a difference? It might work. But I got to tell you, I'm not a gambling girl, and I'm just not willing to make that gamble for 14 million workers who are out of work and the millions more who are, are really suffering economically. Thank you. Thank you, Cecilia Rouse. And that concludes our closing statements. And that means it's time to find out which side you feel argued best. We want to go again to register your vote for the team that you feel presented the best argument. On this motion, Congress should pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece. So um, while that's happening, I just want to, uh, I just want to say thanks to this panel for, for the level of debate they brought to this and for the spirit and the style and the humor and the intelligence. All right, now it's all in. We've had two teams arguing out this motion. Congress should pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece. You voted twice, once before the debate, to tell us where you stood on it. And again at the end of the debate, after listening to these teams try to persuade you to their point of view, we've asked you to, su- to choose which team argued the best. Here is the result. Before the debate on this motion, 45% were for the motion, 16% against, and 39% undecided. After the debate, 69% are for the motion. That is up 24%. 22% are against. That's up only 6%. 
9% are undecided. That's down 30%. The team arguing for the motion that Congress should pass Obama's jobs plan piece by piece carries the debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and we'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, presented by the Rosencrantz Foundation, was held at New York University's Skirball Center for the Performing Arts. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. That's IQ, the number two, us.org. To hear the full unedited version or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast, visit npr.org slash intelligence squared. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.